Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 3, The Girl Next Door. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, Drew, I have so many questions for you, but first, I do want to make a final reminder that our patrons have a limited time discount on Rochelle's brand new faith print. And if you haven't seen it, you absolutely have to go have a look at it on Etsy. It's beautiful. It's Destiel coded. It has the buy flag colors. Like, what more can I say? Magic. Truly. This season, we started shouting at people who have left us a review on Apple Podcasts. And so this week, we'd like to thank Sammy182 and Avril Elisa for their kind words. We really appreciate it, and it helps so, so much. We recorded 702, and I told you I was going to go watch 703 right away. I did not. It took me a few days. But you did ask me to text you when I was done. I did not get a single text. The text exists. It was written, but it was a wall. And it was anger. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to save this for the show. <laughs> the worst part of this episode is the worst part of this episode. But like the twist of the knife that's already lodged in my heart is that you cast one of my favorite actors of all time and then name her after one of my favorite characters of all time. <laughs> oh, Drew. <laughs> And then she's the one who has to suffer for Dean's stupid, angry arrogance. But I think that that's the whole point, right? She was meant to be, to 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 be sympathetic for viewers, right? Remove my my like personal attachments to the name and the character and the actor, and like it's already bad. It was just salt on a wound for me. How about you get us started with the recap, and then we'll get on to talk about the episode. Sure, count me down. Three, two, one, go. Uh, we get to the hospital, we get out, Bobby's alive, and we're suddenly, three weeks later, Leviathans haven't found them, but clearly they're good at it because they've, like, tracked their credit card and they have people, like, in places. It's, like, it is an operation and they are good and it is scary. Dean's in a cast still. Uh, Bobby's collecting books to rebuild his library from backups he made because smart Bobby. And Sam decides, hey, this newspaper article looks interesting. I'm going to go on a hunt. And we find out, of course, that it wasn't just any old hunt to keep him busy. It's a hunt with strings attached, some even kind of romantical, but a lot of personal stuff. And in the end, despite encountering this creature that he let go once before and realizing that they had reason to do what they were doing, he lets them go again, even feels uncomfortable to tell Dean about it. And Dean's all like, yeah, no, I get it. It's okay. I found you. Everything's good. Uh, and then, oops, behind your back, I'm going to finish your dirty work and kill this person and then be really cruel about it. Time. Oh my god. Okay, what do we have to look forward to from this episode? This episode was written by Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin, directed by none other than Jensen Ackles, and originally aired on October 7th, 2011. Wait, wait, Jensen directed this? <laughs> yes, absolutely he did. I had no idea. That's completely a surprise in this moment. Now go back and watch it again, if you can, like, or at least parts of it. And like, remember that he is directing himself when he's acting. Oh, Jesus. I'm gonna have to go watch like, at least the final scene with Amy and probably uh, him alone on the couch with the 
can we also mention just a few little things here quickly? Um, two things I brought up at the beginning of the episode. I just need to voice it completely. The fact that they took my favorite cat, my favorite character from Firefly's actor, Jewel State, had her named Amy Pond, my favorite character from Doctor Who, and then had her so ceremoniously and wrongfully destroyed in this way destroyed me. <laughs> think that the goal was really to make Dean seem unsympathetic to the rest of to, to the fandom. And I think that this was one of the ways that they could do that because keep in mind that this was also like right before or right like on the cusp of like the super hulock like me- mega fandom that was going on or that was about to happen. And so they knew that people were familiar with Amy Pond. Well, Sam even comments on it. Yes, he does. Absolutely. He even he even makes a nod to like, oh, cute. So I think that like this was kind of the goal. The whole goal was to to make Dean appear unsympathetic in this episode, and so they had to choose somebody that people liked, and yeah, they they chose so well. They could not check more boxes for at least me. Okay, so I have been telling you since we started season seven that I find it really hard to watch the season and that I don't love the season. Well, this episode is actually one of the big reasons why. Understandably. Dean confirms that he really thought that Bobby was dead. Uh, you know, we were wondering last episode if, like, what he thought about that. But when he does see him walking into the hospital room, he says, like, Bobby, you're alive with a face that I, I can't describe. And only Jensen Ackles can display, like, this many emotions in under three seconds flat. Character aside, the actor of Jensen Ackle, phenomenal work this week. So most of this episode actually takes place about three weeks after the events of last episode, which basically means that it's been three weeks since Bobby's house burnt down. It's been three weeks since Cass died, since Dean broke his leg, and since Sam had his breakdown, which is not a lot of time, objectively. For Dean, three weeks is like forever with this cast, and like he's like, as we see, like champing at the bit to get out of it. But then, like, Sam seems surprisingly more fine than normal all of a sudden. With, like, what happened in those three weeks? Like, was it gradual? Was it sudden? Like, what? Okay. Well, so one thing that we do see quite a bit is that when Dean falls asleep at one point and, and when Sam is about to leave is that there's a lot of beer cans open. And it's not Sam drinking them. So I don't know if that's something that you clocked, but it's, it's definitely there. And it sort of just seems, even from the whole pie comment, it was very much a just like, I don't care, give me things, make me feel better, beer and pie. So they've been hiding out in a cabin that Rufus owned, and apparently Bobby has copies of his books like stashed in different places, so they still have access to that data bank at least. At least for storytelling purposes, it's kind of like, okay, we need to actually like rebuild the backup, but there's a way to do it. I don't assume this is the case, but like, I like again, they got rid of one hideout just to literally end up at another one. I don't foresee Rufus as being the one that's gonna become permanently, but like already we have a temporary hideout like immediately after. We find out that as far as we know, nothing can kill Leviathans. And they are incredibly well organized. Like they're able to get an approximate location for Sam and Dean just by placing like one of their uh one of them at a credit card company to monitor their purchases, which like very sophisticated for like compared to the rest of the monsters that we've seen on Supernatural. I do compare it to like Bobby's FBI phone bank of like these like much higher level like 
what's the next iterative step in the plan. Like, it's one thing to have fake badges, but the next step of having a fake boss you can call to fake verify all this. So it's not just a matter of, like, let's have demons stationed around the, uh, the U.S. to, like, try to spot demon hunters. It's, no, no, we figured out what kind of fake credit cards they use. It's It's an incredibly scary pers- like perspective to have on it of like how much power they have how much sway they hold now it's important to notice that this is a flashback episode honestly i thought it was a well done flashback episode sam is knocked out twice in this episode so just like if we're <laughs> counting the number of times that sam is unconscious like i think we're at three in just like two episodes uh i mean knocked out three unconscious four the seizure on the uh in the hospital true 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 the first time it happened this episode, that was, like, immediately, like, I remember you saying that. And then I'm like, okay, wow, like, twice in two ep, three times in two episodes? It's like, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Sam Sam is going to have a lot of brain damage by the end of the season. So Dean kills Amy, as we know, and he doesn't tell Sam. And I would also put Jacob in the long game, but the show just never delivers on that really ominous promise, so... Jacob is out there with the the kid with the uh, the antichrist powers and they're raising the newborn baby um of that other creature they let live that I forget the the Rougarou, thank you. This monster clan that's out there doing their own Scooby doing. In my head canon. There you go. <laughs> they do the mash. <laughs> <laughs> the monster mash? Yes. The monster mash. Okay. Oh man, that's a hell of a graveyard smash. <laughs> Now, remember when I said last week that the show makes like four big mistakes this season or at least four big mistakes? Well, to me, this is mistake number three. Having Dean kill Amy like isn't really something that anyone is going to come back from. Like the show is going to have a really hard time digging itself like out of that hole. I I have nothing to add to this. Like we'll talk more on this. I think it's a very important point. Me neither. Me neither. I have one last question for you in this long game. Are you as convinced as I am that the last scene of this episode is a cheeky reference to the Game of Thrones episode, A Golden Crown? The only memory I have of an episode that long ago is Viserys' death with the molten gold? Yes. Well, because it, it, like he's pouring the gold onto his head in Game of Thrones, and here he's pouring the cheese. Oh my god, the molten cheese. You're right, that's so much funnier. <laughs> that's so much better. So I bring this up because I think it's important because it really shows how early on like Andrew Dabb was really into Game of Thrones. And we're going to need to keep that in mind for much later seasons. Um, The last thing I want to do before we move on, though, is um, I kind of find it incredibly adorable that when Sam does leave a little note for Dean as he's falling asleep to the schlockiest horror vision 3D Halloween trailer... Um, the cake is completely untouched. <laughs> he doesn't like cake. He likes pie. He wanted pie and he got cake. He's very upset about that. I should add that to the list of his problems right now. <laughs> That's why he killed Amy, because he didn't get pie. <laughs> like, honestly, like, there's like that internal like scale thing of like all these things weighing me down, but at least I got some pie. Nope. Sam screwed it up. Our theme this week is displaced aggression, which is a psychology term for when we take out our anger 
on someone who has nothing to do with the reason why we're angry. We may also have heard the term redirected aggression, which is what we tend to use when this happens to like pets and other animals. Just to be very, very clear, you and I are not psychologists, we're not social workers, we're not mental health professionals, we're not counselors, and so we're not going to go into detail about what that is, how to spot it, etc. But we're just going to use like that general definition as a lens to understand this episode a little bit better. What about Dean? He's really the one who shows the most displaced aggression in this episode, like especially through like killing Amy. And yes, I I really do want to jump right into it because it's it's too big, like it's huge. And I don't I don't know how you lived it, but like the first time that I saw it, and keep in mind like this was right after I had just started like really liking Dean, and I was like, whoa, maybe I was actually like right about him before when I disliked him. Like it really cast a shadow over my appreciation for this character and like just a break from story time for a second i know that there are some fans who just like refuse this as part of canon like they just decide like that the writing was out of character and they're like dean would never do this and like i really get it so if that's you like keep on doing what you're doing but here we're really going to look at this action as something that dean would do it seems like the writers wanted to go in a different direction and it just failed And I could sit here, you've seen me do this to try and explain things away and work it out that it makes sense canonically in some way, but nothing's going to make it better or make it work right. To keep to our theme, it does just seem to be Dean using murder as an outlet for his aggression, which is awful and I hate it. Dean kills Amy, and before he does, he says, People, they are who they are. No matter how hard you try, you are what you are. You will kill again. Trust me, I'm an expert. Maybe in a year, maybe 10, eventually the other shoe will drop. It always does. Like, I mean, I think we can all agree that this isn't really about Amy. Like, this is about Dean and his own issues with with Sam and with Cass. Yeah, at least we can draw meaning from this speech. He's angry at himself for trusting Sam and for trusting Cass, both of whom seem to, be, seem to keep going back to their old ways, You know, Cass is trying to do right by everyone and losing himself in the process, though we do know that this was done ultimately for Dean. And Sam for going back to this Reclo solo work and thinking he can beat anything, i.e. his Lucifer headworm, just because he's the best and he can do anything. He's trusted them and he's trusted they could change and could truly be family, but instead he's feeling betrayed and so he takes it out on poor Amy Pond. Right, 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 right. If we can dig into his issues with Cass for a second. Like, I think that this is one of the first times that Dean kind of almost openly voices that he wishes that Cass had changed. Because, like, in his little spiel, he says that people don't change, and the very overt subtext here is that not changing is a bad thing. Not changing means that you're going to make the same mistakes over and over and over again, and you just won't grow and you won't learn. And Dean had just spent about three years like getting closer to Cass and like developing a relationship with him and seeing him break from heaven and its dogma and towards more humanity and human feelings. And yet Cass still chose dogma over his human feelings for Dean. So the other shoe did drop here, even though like he had helped Dean so much previously. And so like Dean had hoped that Cass was changing 
But that hope was completely let down when he realized like what Cass had done. And and even worse, like that basically led to like his death. And now Dean is alone and without the relationship that he had built with Cass. And and I think that like he's upset because he had allowed himself to rely on that relationship. And again, I think he was hoping he was trusting also. And then the other shoe dropped. It's scoring. He's feeling scorned by putting so much faith into somebody who he truly thought was there for him. And again, we, we as an audience can see what Cass was truly doing. We've, we've seen all of the, how much he did this for Dean, but all Dean sees is like you said, Cass going back and choosing dogma over him and letting himself go and ultimately abandoning him. Dean feels stupid for, for, hoping that and and to be very clear there's nothing stupid about hope and there's nothing like bad about it i but i think that in the in this moment dean feels stupid for hoping you know when when you really believe that somebody is going to change and then they don't and and it's an incredible letdown and and i think that dean is just like experiencing that right now and that's that's really really painful So let's talk a little bit about his issues with Sam now, because Sam has like his own journey of accepting himself as a freak, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. But Dean has not accepted that. And he just wants like his brother to be, quote unquote, normal or as normal as he can be, like considering that they're like demon hunting brothers. Right. And Sam has gone through like a really dark patch in season four, as we know. But things like got so much better. And I would argue that the whole soulless thing was wasn't really his fault. So I'll, I'll leave that out for now. Let's just bracket that out for a second. And I think that Dean was thinking that all of that was behind them and that Sam was like fixed or something. But now like with him dealing with the repercussions of the year that he spent in the cage with Lucifer, he's right back to being that freak that Dean wishes that he wasn't. And so the other shoe dropped there too. And he's feeling like it's every time Every time that they get close, it always falls apart. Like, every freaking time. And, like, while I despise Dean's actions and the way this was all handled, he's justified in his feelings. They both went back to doing what he thought was in their past, leaving him unsure that he can ever trust again. You know, killing Amy was not the way to do this at all. But it still did drive home the point in what Dean is feeling and how angry he is. Right. And I think that that's really, to me, where the, where I draw the line. And again, like if we're using fiction as a way to reflect on our own lives, like I think that Dean's feelings are entirely justified, but I think that his behavior and the actions that he actively chooses are wrong. And so like I think that there's a way to have empathy for him for how he's feeling while still recognizing that like going out and murdering somebody is not the right way to go. Or like to, in a more realistic way, I guess, for most people anyway, that like, taking out your anger on somebody else is probably not the way to go and it's not going to fix anything. And if anything, it's going to make things worse. Yep. And I also want to add another thing before we move on to Sam, because I think that when Dean found out that Amy had a son, like he full on like projected his own experience as a child, like growing up with like a figurative monster for a father, like onto this kid, like who he thinks will be better off without a monster mother. Um, And we talked about this a little bit in Let It Bleed, actually, how I think that, like, Dean wishes that somebody had intervened to take, like, his father away from him or, like, maybe to take him away from his father. 
Um, but the thing is, like, Dean hasn't really seen the love and the stability that Amy is giving this child. Like, he has no idea what this boy's life is like, and he's just projecting his own shit onto him. So again, like, he's 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 feeling angry about the way that he grew up, and so he thinks that he's doing this kid a favor. If this were truly just about killing a monster because monsters are monsters, then he should have, and I nearly expected him, to kill the child. Like, I get the the whole, like, he hasn't done anything yet and, you know, why he's innocent. But in that same breath, he's talking about how it'll happen eventually. It's completely hypocritical. Like, because the only way to really dig itself out of this is going to be to say, like, well, she was a monster and I did what you couldn't do kind of thing. So a little spoiler there, but that is something that's going to happen. And I just think that that's such a disservice to the show as a whole, because, like, one of the big questions that this show asks is like what is a monster and they know that like there's this big distinction between like hunting monsters and hunting evil and monsters aren't always evil and evil isn't always monsters and so here I feel like anyway we'll see when we get there but I I I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about how this happens and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later but I, I completely agree with you this is not about hunting monsters it, it's not because if it was like you said he would have killed Jacob as well but basically like I think what we need to remember is that Dean is angry at Sam he's angry at Cass he's angry at his dad he's angry at himself and he takes it on Amy shall we move on to Sam I find that Sam offers like a counterpoint to Dean's actions in this episode like because Sam repeatedly chooses not to kill Amy and he like repeatedly is in a situation where he could but he chooses to not let his anger take over and I think I want to start with what we see in the flashbacks first so like it's 1998 Sam's 15 uh, John and Dean who would be 19 are on uh, a hunt and they left Sam behind so this means that he's like in a motel room by himself like all the while, like, going to school and also getting yelled at to find information about the kitsune. Personally, I find that that in and of itself is pretty alarming. And then there's, like, the whole conversation with Amy where they're both, like, they both talk about being freaks, which I'll share some more thoughts in critical time. And the script works really over time to make, like, Amy's mom and John seem like the same person in different fonts. And... Amy's mom is clearly abusive and we've known that about John or at least like we've deduced it but this is like another piece of the puzzle that confirms it right like we've talked a lot about how the show changes its perspective of John as time goes by and I find that this is one of those big moments where we're really seeing like the text tell us like John was abusive because John was like this woman who is abusive Um, And Sam even says, like, you don't want to see him when he's drinking. And I think if Sam was, like, as cynical as Dean currently is in his own worldview, like, he would be thinking, people don't change, you become your parents, and you make the same mistakes as them. But he's not. Like, his life is spared, actually, because Amy was not like her mom, and she actively made different choices. And I see this as young Sam finding hope in this situation in his own. If Amy can make her own choices and become free of her awful parent, then so can he. They're both freaks, as they put it, and they bond over this even if the type of freak they both are is so different. 
in that moment of revelations, it doesn't matter. Sam starts by facing Amy as the shoulder that John raised because that's all he knows and he must obey dad. But it's Amy's ability to break the chain that both physically and spiritually sets him free and lets him see he too can break free and isn't just a puppet that has to do everything John says. Which I think is what makes the present day Sam investment in this case so much more important because it isn't just unfinished business. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, I think it's important to say that, like, even though present day Sam is doing better, like, he's still not well, right? Like, we talked about it briefly last week, but, like, recovery and healing takes a lot of time, and Sam has, like, every reason to let his anger and his aggression be displaced. Like, he has literal Lucifer in his head. If anything, like, if he was to snap and kill somebody, I'd be like, I mean, I don't want to say I'd be understanding, but, like, almost, kind of, you know? Like, or at least... I would I I could make sense of it a lot easier. But again, he's actively choosing not to. And I think that it shows that like despite everything that's going on with him, like Sam is able to have the kind of hope about life and about people that Dean Dean is just not able to at the moment. Yeah, this is Sam not giving into displaced aggression that is so important here. He sees Amy's return to killing as like a parallel to himself failing at being his own person, which he's already struggling with due to, as we just said, sharing some headspace with Lucifer. The ultimate ability to be rational and understand Amy, it feels like the same lesson we began to see them deal with in season four's Metamorphosis with the, the Ruguru, as we mentioned earlier at the top of the episode. Not all monsters are monsters. Be just because we label them as such, they have nuance. We've learned that, right? Like, and the show makes it abundantly clear they've saved vampires before. Like, we know this. And I also want to bring something up here because I feel like Sam does something in this episode that to me at first felt very strange, but looking on it again makes a lot of sense. And it's how content and comfortable he is in this moment that he's able to tell Dean what he did. I feel like I was ready for the lie of like, oh, I dealt with it, end of story. But like, no, I'm going to be honest. I let Amy go because she's not a monster. I am telling you this empirically. I tracked her down. I did the hunt. I did the work. And I'm proud to say that I walked away and didn't have to kill her because things are good. He trusted Dean. Of all of the things, like, kind of the worst part about all this, because it's, like, Sam is actually, like, like you said, he's breaking the chain, right? Like, breaking the, 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 the terrible patterns that they've had in the past of, like, keeping secrets from one another. And he's, like, you know what? Like, let me be honest, especially right now. You need me to be honest with you, with what's going on with me, and I will be open and vulnerable with you. And Dean goes and does that, and it's, like, it hurts. The woods are quieter tonight than usual. The moon is new and the stars fill the sky. Walking the marked path is no more difficult than during the day. You know these woods well enough. You have camped in them before on multiple occasions. At first as a child with your family, then again as a teen as a place to escape your home life and feel some freedom. Later in your life, you would pass these woods on your commute to work. Memories of roasted marshmallows, hidden romance, inside jokes, 
and shivers of fear dance through your mind as your car idles in the morning traffic, just a few minutes away from a place you knew so well. The daylight is soon gone completely. The faded purple and oranges of the setting sun playing amongst the branches is no more. You recall walking these woods, hand in hand with a woman you thought might be in your life forever. You placed a hand on the bark of a tree, wondering if you ever did carve your names together into one of them. You don't remember. Finally, you reach the clearing, the campground you'd set up in many times before. It's harder now. You're older. It's darker. And it has been a very long time since you've used this equipment. Most is simple. Even the fire you light almost without realizing you've done it. Like it was second nature. The tent you eventually give up on. Unsure if it's broken, missing parts, or if maybe you're the issue. The fire roars loudly. as nearly the only sound for miles. No one else is set up for the night here. You are alone. And after the long week... You are glad for this. Cooking dinner over the fire is pleasant and easy. It feels good and builds up some sort of primal confidence and pride in being able to do it, even if it is just pre-packaged hot dogs on a stick over a flame. As you become full, you put away the leftover food and snacks you packed and watch the flame as it begins to die down. It's warm enough, even as it fades, that the sleeping bag will suffice for tonight. As the light of the fire dims, your night vision returns, allowing you to again make out more details in the woods around you. Most noticeably, a fox. It slowly and cautiously approaches you. Your brain tells you this is a wild animal, a carnivore, and while it may be smaller than you, it's most certainly quicker. But despite logic, you do not move. You do not panic. You simply open the cooler, reach in for one of the leftover hot dogs, and offer it to the visitor. It takes it from you slowly, and seems to leave with its head held a bit higher than when it had entered the clearing. You wake the next morning with a clear mind and peace in your heart. You sit up and take in the dewy morning air and sunlight. You spot something. Your initials and that of a woman you once loved carved into the tree just across the clearing from you. Maybe it was just too dark to see last night. Maybe. I'm assuming that every Sam fan is getting like increasingly nervous as this episode goes on because like we haven't talked about Sam's like very obvious and important queer coding here. This is the time in this episode where we're going to talk about it. So let's do it. Let's talk about it. I want to start by acknowledging that part of the episode is about Sam having a crush on someone. And as he gets to know them, he realizes just like how much they have in common. And then he finds out that someone to be a freak or a monster, quote unquote, And I want to look at two parts in the text. The first is in 1998, when Sam and Amy are talking about being freaks. And Sam talks about it as like a negative thing, right? Like he says, everyone always thinks you're a freak. But then Amy puts a different spin on it. 
She says, Sam, you are a freak. So am I. All the coolest people are freaks. We can be freaks together. And like here, let's assume for a second that freaks is a euphemism for like queer or gay, the same way that we did for Dean when he talks about vampires as freaks back in uh, Bloodlust in season two. Like the conversation becomes a lot more clear. The second part of this text is when Sam is talking to Dean about accepting who he is. And it starts with Dean being like, basically, well, it's okay to fall in love, but not with a freak like this, right? And like, you cannot be with somebody like that. And Sam responds, I've spent a lot of my life trying to be normal, but come on, I'm not normal. Look at all the crap I've done. Look at me now. I'm a grade A freak. And here again, if we assume that normal is a euphemism for straight, like he's openly acknowledging that he's not. And this is Sam like coming out to some degree, I think. And also like it shows his own acceptance of who he is because like Amy wasn't the first freak he's fallen for, or at least not the only one, because there was also Madison and Ruby. I mean, also so far, I just want to mention that many of them have died. And that's a whole other conversation, but, like, you don't want to be dating Sam Winchester. I mean, realistically, you don't want to be dating either of the Winchesters. The, their track record of um, people they've been with surviving is pretty low. But it is especially low for Sam, Drew. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but look at Dean's last lover. Yeah, but Lisa's alive. Cassie's alive. Most of his other hookups are alive. You can't say the same for Sam. (laughs) Okay, no. Good point. Good point. This week, we have a message from Leo. And before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Drew and I are going to be answering the question, who was your first crush for our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala talk? Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Now, before we play this voicemail, we do want to let you know that it will be discussing child abuse and that we will be responding to that voicemail. So if that's not something you feel like dealing with right now or at all, you can skip this section and move ahead about seven minutes, five to seven minutes, and meet us at the Reflection and Call to Action. Hi, I'm Leo. I love your guys' podcast, and I wanted to talk about Season 6, Episode 21, Let It Bleed. So, a lot happens in this episode, and Dean is a terrible person. But I also think that Dean is very much acting like John in this episode. Um, When he slaps Ben, when he says, come on, pull it together, do you want your mom to die, when he shouts at him, that seems like something that John would do. And the fandom is very divided over whether John Winchester has ever hit his kids, whether he has ever hit Dean, but I don't think that it really matters. Children do not need to be hit necessarily in order to believe that violence could be used against them. And I think that especially Sam and Dean have grown up in an environment where violence is the accepted method of conflict resolution, to the point where, at the end of the episode, when Dean says, if you ever talk about Lisa and Ben again, I will break your nose, Sam is not surprised. Because instead of viewing this as a method of avoiding talking about their feelings, they think that violence is the correct way to talk about their feelings. They are hunters. They see violence as as a morally neutral tool, and that's not what it is. There is no situation in which it is ever acceptable to hit children for any reason. 
but I don't think that Dean knows that. But Ben knows that. And Ben does not like Dean in this episode, and he has not liked Dean for a while, because Dean has been on a downward spiral, he has been cruel, he has shoved Ben, he has shouted at him, and Ben, who has grown up in an environment that is loving and understanding, sees Dean for what he is. Dean is an adult who has not dealt with his own emotional damage and is taking it out on the people around him. And when Ben is still angry at him at the end of the episode, when Dean apologizes and Ben gets up and leaves, first of all, good for him, Ben is rejecting what John Winchester has taught them. He is rejecting Dean becoming John. And I think that that shakes Dean so much that that is what fuels him to himself reject John's methods and to apologize to Ben for the second time after he begins to sympathize with him. But also, after their memories are gone, Dean comes in and he says, I'm the one who hit you. I lost control. I'm sorry. Which is not even a real apology. And I don't think that John has ever taught the boys how to apologize because I don't think that John has ever apologized to the boys. But also, the camera is on Dean when he says this. It is not an apology that is for Lisa and Ben. It is an apology that is for him and that is about him. And I think that he means that he is sorry for hitting Ben. But I don't think that he understands why. I'm very excited for you guys to talk about this episode and also many future episodes, but I will have to be patient until then. I can't imagine that you will talk about this episode without talking about Dean and Ben, so I am eager to hear what you guys have to say. Oh my gosh, Leo, I think if we had ordered a voicemail for this episode, like you could not possibly have sent us a more accurate and appropriate one to talk about. First off, I want to say thank you for talking about this moment where where Sam, uh, sorry, where Dean hits Ben, because it's not something that I see talked about in fandom a lot. And it's, um, it's something that I had actually like put out of my mind. Like I didn't remember it until I saw it and we did this, like we covered this episode. So thank you for talking about it. I think it is very important. And the link that you make also, like I'm the one who hits you, Wow, I'd never even thought about it. So thank you again for for pointing that out. And I'm deep into watching the Winchesters right now and 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 gathering some thoughts about that. And so obviously I have all of the brainworms right now, but I I completely agree with you. I think that this is this is Dean and I think we said that during the episode. And and to a certain degree this is also true for this episode, but this is Dean like at his lowest, at his most stressed and reaching for things and for coping mechanisms that are absolutely, I mean, you know, I hate the word unhealthy, but I think in this, at this point, it, it's kind of unavoidable to say this and, and to say that there, these coping mechanisms are literally hurting everybody around him. So yeah, thanks for this voicemail. An incredibly powerful voicemail, Leo. Thank you. Like you said, Mary, the connection between the not so much of an apology, but admittance of hitting him that he does at the end there to the actual act of hitting him. Like that was not a connection I made. So having that there is so it's amazing that it like it's the connection is made and then it hurts to then analyze it as you've done and see that it really doesn't feel like an apology, but more of like an admittance of guilt. Like just, I want you to know that I hit you and I'm sorry but I'm not actually apologizing for it, which is like really weird, but kind of also fits this kind of Dean at his lowest. 
and you're right. Like, Mayor, you say you put it out of your head. For me, it just got so chalked up with the, like, that's what you do in a moment of shock is you just, you need to get that person's attention. And, like, but this is a child. This is not just, like, your brother who's, like, freaked out by some shit. This is, this is a literal child who you have been charged with the care of. And you're right. I don't think Dean sees it as wrong, which is horrible. But, again, speaks volumes for him his upbringing, and like we touched on today, John and what we've inferred from him. I really don't want to say in his defense, but just to to understand why he doesn't see it as wrong, I think, or or at least he doesn't want to admit to himself that it's wrong. It's because he would have to have like a really big awakening about his own childhood if he were to really realize like how how wrong that is. Because it's um, it's one thing to say you shouldn't hit children, but it's another thing to realize like oh shit, somebody hit me when I was a kid. And that realization, I, th- I think Dean is just not ready for it. Yeah, I think that would open up too many wounds. Um, but like we said, this was just like phenomenally well-timed as a voicemail for the topic today. So Leo, thank you so much. Drew, do you have any reflection and call to action this week? I had a really heartfelt conversation with a friend um, this week that weirdly lined up with this episode. And it's how much trusting somebody can open you to pain and how hard it can be to then reopen up and trust someone. Even as this person said, to go back to somebody who they had lost trust in, have that conversation and begin the relationship anew and begin to build trust again, which is something I'm like so beyond proud of them for doing. And my call to action, not that I have anyone for that, but is to keep that in my heart, to keep that in my mind. Not to say that everyone deserves a second chance. I'm not someone who's going to sit on that bridge and say like, oh, you never know. There's always... No. But if someone truly has reached a point where you feel they have truly earned forgiveness and you choose that this is someone you'd like to try again with in whatever capacity for you, or in this case for me, to keep that possibility open. It doesn't mean that anyone gets a free pass with me or anyone that I love, but it just so happens to mean that if there is a falling out with somebody, it doesn't mean it has to be forever. I'm, I'm going to very gently, very gently poke a little bit of fun at you because I think that this is a great, a, a great call to action, Drew. But I love how you're like, I like to give second chances, but don't try me. Well, there are certain people in my life who have gone to a point where I don't think that that could ever happen again. Like they've reached that, they've reached the end of the rope and I'm done. And there's people who I have genuinely fallen out with and I have tried to reconnect with. Some of them are open to it. Some of them are not. Some try to reconnect with me and I'm open to it or not. So again, I I think you're right. You know me. I'm kind of a soft teddy bear type in the I'm always going to give a second chance. But there are certain people who, if they were Mufasa hanging off the edge of a cliff, I would sooner quote Scar than try to save them. I think discernment is really important here to be able to discern who you are willing to give a second chance to and who you're not. And do you have any reflection or call to action for this week? As much as I really dislike this episode, 
like I just found that Sam's like cool, calm and collected acceptance of himself like really spoke to me. And like I, I, I aspire to that. And so I feel called to nurture like those f- more freakish, quote unquote, parts of myself. I am always on board for more freakish. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Figueroa and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our bunker supporters, Katira, L, Jeremiah Thomas, and Simone. This week, we'd like to thank Leo for their message. You can go to carryingwayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a coffee subscriber. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. Carry on our wayward friends. I can't believe I'm going to say this. Her fucking like username on MSN, everyone always changed to like song lyrics or like to be about something was song lyrics, but about, and then it's, but specifically, and she said like thinking about a different guy. And I was like, how do I approach this? What do I do? And she literally, I mean, this was a long distance relationship for kids in elementary school. So really, what was it? But she broke up with me over MSN Messenger away message, essentially.